0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Reading from 1 John chapter 2 verses 12 through 14. I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I want to open us up in prayer before we dig into the message today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to gather in your presence. Pray that you would be with us now as the word is preached. Give us all ears to hear. Let the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So good morning, everybody. Um, good morning. As Carl had said, my name is Shane Peterson. This is not my first rodeo here. It's a pleasure to be with you as always. And uh, we are continuing uh, the message as I had preached last time to you in John's first epistle. And uh, today we're going to begin with an overview of where we have been since the beginning of this epistle up until now. I think it's important that we remember the flow of John's letter and how we got where we are to provide context. Uh, if you are one to take notes, I'll give you your outline right up front. Very simple. Point one is uh, overview, a uh, recap of where we've been. Point two is a proclamation to God's people. And point three is an application for God's people. So here's your overview. Uh, The epistle of 1 John, we're primarily dealing here with assurance. In the first five verses of the book, it's dealing with the witness of John. He's testifying to his apostolic authority to speak on the matters of Christ and what he ends up speaking on. He points to the witnessing of the risen Lord uh, in the flesh. He appeals to the senses, the tangible. He says, that which we have seen, that which we've handled, heard, etc. This was in large part due to the rise of the proto-Gnostics at the time that denied Jesus was God and that, that he had come in the flesh since they thought all flesh, all material was evil. It was also in response to the God-hating Jews at the time who denied that Jesus was the Messiah Both of these groups were prevalent at the time, and they were seeking to draw people away from the church. And both of these groups deny that Jesus is God. Now, up until this point, John has been pointing to things that we can look to, questions we can ask ourselves to see that we are in Christ, that we can have assurance of our standing in Him. He starts with his witness, because that's him establishing himself as an authority to speak on these matters. And so after establishing his authority to speak on this, he makes truth statements about those who are in Christ. Christians walk in the light because Jesus is the light and we are in him. Christians are to have a spirit of humility. We are to understand that we are all broken. We are all sinners. He says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We recognize that we are sinners and that we are unworthy of the presence of God on our own accord. We are like Adam after he ate the fruit in the garden, hiding from the face of God because he was naked and ashamed. We are naked and ashamed without Christ. We need God to clothe us in His righteousness. As Christians, we understand that. And so we are to be humble. And when we do sin, because we do still sin... Uh, We have an advocate with the Father who is faithful and just to forgive our sins when we come to Him in repentance. He has given us a means of reconciliation through confession and absolution, or assurance of pardon, as it's called. Jesus is our covering. He is our propitiation. He is our Passover Lamb whose blood is over our mantle, causing the angel of death to pass over us, sparing us from God's wrath. His offer of salvation is a free gift, but we have to cling to his promises. Also, Christians are to walk in obedience and in love. We can't just be externally obedient and have a rotten heart and bad motives. Plenty of the people in the world are good, moral people on the surface, thanks to common grace and ignorance that they are listening to the law of God written on their heart as being created in an image. But we, as Christians, we have to have our loves properly ordered. And love must underlie all that we say and do. We are to adhere to the summation of the law, which is the two great commandments. We are to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And all of this is less like a checklist and more of a statement of fact. You are in Christ. So as you are being conformed to His image through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, these things will be more and more true of you. And sanctification, it's not an overnight process for most people. It certainly takes place over the course of your entire life. Generally speaking, you have to learn how to crawl before you walk. And you have to learn to walk before you run. You have to feed on the milk before you get the meat. Growth has to occur. And everybody is at a different place in this spiritual life. We're all at different places, but we are equally forgiven if we are in Christ. Now this brings us to our text for today. So we're going to go into point two, the proclamation to God's people. It says, "'I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for His namesake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning.'" I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, you probably notice at first glance the repetition that takes place in this section. It is interesting. Some commentators try to determine the meaning of it laid out the way that it is. Um, Some will say it's just paralleled and saying the same thing repeated for emphasis sake. And that has some merit to it. Uh, There's things that are obviously repeated and that's meant for emphasis. Today, we're going to look at it this way. You'll notice how the first three addresses say, I write to you. And then the next set say, I have written. Now, John may have had in mind, first of all, the church, obviously, that he was writing to presently. He obviously had them in mind. And then the I have written to denote that he expects this letter to be read by Christians beyond the church immediately that he had written to. I'm not saying that's exactly what he had in mind. It's a little speculative. But considering the whole Bible has an immediate context and it applies to all believers over all time, I, I think it's worth taking it and considering now one option of this text is that it's denoting people of different age groups and another option is that it's written to believers at different places in their spiritual walk different levels of spiritual maturity and i think that that's very likely it's also not mutually exclusive uh, from the last option so what is this message what is this proclamation that john is making to his people Verse 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. So who are these little children that he's talking to? The Greek word for little children here is technia. This means someone under the nurture and the care of the person saying it. It's a term of endearment. John here is referring to this whole body of believers, the whole congregation that he's writing to. He's referring to them as little children because they are under his spiritual care. This isn't exclusively talking about little children. Uh, that is a different word uh, than is used in verse 13 where it says children. That word in the Greek is paideia, which actually means young child. So we are to come to Jesus with a childlike faith, one of trust, one of obedience. And one of the benefits of those who are effectually called by God is that of adoption When we are brought into the covenant with God, we are then in the household of God, and we are His children. It says in Galatians 4, 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Just as we are children of God, we are also, in a sense, spiritual children under the care of our elders. It's a normal thing in a church for a minister, a shepherd, overseer to refer to his congregation as his children. It's not demeaning. It's a recognition of the fact that they are under that man's care. So the first thing in this section is he wants to remind his church, his people, that he is writing this to them because their sins are forgiven in Jesus's namesake. He is stating a fact. After all that we went through, Leading up to this part of the letter, he's affirming their status of being forgiven of their sins. Now, there's a presumption involved here. There's the presumption that if we are in the church, that we are forgiven. I don't think this is wrongheaded. I also don't think that he's disregarding those who may be unrepentant. I think he's making a general statement. If you are unrepentant, if you're living in disobedience, then you're putting yourself outside of the church already. If you are unrepentant, that means you lack the humility to admit that you are in sin and that you're not asking God for forgiveness. If you are not clinging to God's promises, then these promises aren't yours. John doesn't need to reiterate this fact because he already made that case with the self-test of love and obedience that leads up to this part of the letter. So apart from being under discipline... Or in open rebellion, it is safe to say that if you are in church and living like a Christian, your sins are forgiven. It's the same beautiful words in um, absolution, in the assurance of pardon, that you get given after corporate and private confession of sin in your Lord's service here. It is a promise and it's something to cling to. So, little children, your sins are forgiven. Verse 13. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. Now here John is addressing the fathers. There's a couple reasons for this. For one, in God's order, the households are led by the men. And this was especially true back then. It's still true today. That's God's order but many modern families are led by an empty chair or a man that advocates his role to the woman men are to spiritually lead their families it's normal to address men specifically in order to convey a message to the people even when it's in the presence of women also it's a relatively modern invention that made it a necessity to address everyone John isn't necessarily excluding the women from the message because the fathers here is a reference to the spiritually mature. Men and women are both called the spiritual maturity. We see description of spiritually mature women in Scripture like Titus 2 and in Proverbs 31. So the address to fathers isn't saying women are excluded, but this is related to spiritual warfare and that it was the men that are the ones that receive the orders and go out to battle. This addressing is like a debriefing of a commander to his troops. Someone who has been following the teachings of God for a long time should be more spiritually mature than a new convert. But that isn't always the case. Now, I place the dating of this letter sometime around 60 AD. This means that at this time there were Jewish and Gentile converts that had been Christian for potentially 20-something years by this time. So there would have been some that were further along under these teachings than others. Also, those that were Jewish converts to Christianity would have had the connections made from Jesus and the apostles and the Old Testament teachings. They would have understood that the whole Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. Jesus confirmed that the whole Old Testament was talking about him to the, on the road to Emmaus. Jesus, when he said this, wasn't just talking about the prophecies. He wasn't just referring to the glaringly obvious examples in what some theologians refer to as the Messianic Psalms. All of it was about Jesus. We see the people in the Old Testament that are clearly types of Jesus and are confirmed as much in the book of Hebrews, like Moses. But not only did people like Moses and Joseph and Joshua and David all typify Jesus, but events themselves typified Jesus. In Matthew 2.15 It says, out of Egypt I have called my son. It says that that was a fulfillment of prophecy. Now that's quoted from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And that refers to Israel and the Exodus. Jesus is the true Israel. The Exodus itself typified Jesus. So it's not only people that typify Jesus, but events. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew, the whole thing shows how Jesus' life parallels all of Israel's history. The whole Old Testament speaks of Jesus. So when it says that the fathers have known Him who is from the beginning, these are the layers. They have known Jesus who is from the beginning because they knew the Old Testament. Remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1 Jesus was from the beginning. The fathers here, again, they are more mature So they have known Him. We talked last time about the different ways uh, in which you can know something or someone. Those who are more spiritually mature will know God more intimately. And it's precisely of how intimately they know God that they are more spiritually mature. This is a reminder. We all need to know God. It says in Hebrews 8.11, "...they shall all know me from the least to the greatest." We all need reminders. Even the most seasoned Christians who have been chewing on the meat of the word for their entire life, they may be the most sanctified person you will ever meet and they will tell you that they need the reminders. We all need the reminders. We'll continue in verse 13. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Now, young men have different struggles with different intensity than Elderly or people that are older or more mature. In the same sense that young men have different struggles than that of little children. Young men are given the reassurance that they have overcome the evil one by virtue of being in Christ. Because Christ crushed the dragon's head. And if Christ defeated the wicked one, then so have we if we are in him. We also need this reassurance when we wrestle with our own flesh. We have every capability to be the evil one who makes shipwreck shipwreck of our faith by giving in to our flesh. We need that reassurance that Christ already won and in Him we have overcome the wicked one. It's an interesting thing and it seems almost paradoxical the fact that we can say that we have overcome the wicked one and yet still wrestle with sin. This is the already not yet aspect to reality. Reality. In the same way that we could say that we are currently justified, but we have yet to stand in the judgment. But the fact that there is a not-yet aspect to these things does not make them any less true for us now. We'll continue in verse 13. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. Here is that other word in Greek, paideia. It actually means child. The message to the children is a simple one. You have known the Father. Children, you are included in all of this. You may not have all the wisdom, but you have a simple trust and faith in God, much like a child knows his own father. An infant lacks wisdom and discernment, but he knows his father. And that lack of wisdom and discernment doesn't make him any less of a child of his father. Just like how even though some are stumbling and limping along in their Christian walk, it doesn't make them any less of a child of God. You don't need to articulate a theological treatise to be brought into the household of God. You need to be baptized, either as a professing adult or as a child of a believer. We believe in the covenant and the promises of the covenant. In a similar manner, you don't need more than a simple profession of faith, a recognition that you are in the household of God by virtue of your baptism that you may be admitted to the Lord's table. God loves the little children. Jesus said in Matthew 19:14, "Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven." Back in Exodus chapter 12, verses 24 through 27, as the Passover was being instituted and the instructions were given by Moses and to the elders, he said, "And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service." And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. The children were to be instructed as they participated in the Passover. The whole household was included. God loves the little children. They are just as much members in this covenant household of God as the adults are. This is why John addresses them as well as others with simple faith. What a tremendous blessing it is to grow in the household of God and the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to partake of the means of grace. Verse 14, I have written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Verse 14 is where we have the repetition of the previous verse. It is repeated for the emphasis. This is written in the past tense I have written. So while it is an emphasis, a reassurance of our assurance in these things, it was not only for the people who he was writing directly to, but also others who would read it later. We too have known him who is from the beginning. We know God. The fathers, those more mature in the faith, have an intimate experiential knowledge of the Father through Jesus. We have this because of His revealing Himself through creation and through His written Word, the Bible, and the living Word, Jesus Himself. God has revealed Himself to us, and through His revelation we know Him. This brings me to our third point, the application for us. We should all aspire to have the spiritual maturity of the Father. As we age through life experiences and walking with the Lord through His Word, prayer, sacraments, fellowship, we should be growing in wisdom. We are being sanctified. We should be becoming more discerning over time, not less discerning. We should be growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Now, ladies, this principle applies to you as well. As you age, you should be growing in wisdom and maturity as well, having more discernment, bearing much fruit. Let's turn to Titus 2 real quick. Now, Titus, Paul's letter of Titus, is to the church at large. Chapter 1 is speaking about the elders of the church, Uh, the qualifications, and their tasks as elders. Chapter 2 is the qualities of a sound church, and it addresses the men and the women and the young people. Bear with me as I read this. Now, I'm reading from the New King James, so it might look a little different to you if you have a different translation. But it is the Word of God, nonetheless. It says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may, may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded, in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our savior in all things. It talks about bondservants, but this applies to our daily jobs, right? Being obedient to our employers. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. So there we have this the principle, what it looks like for spiritual maturity, what our duties, what our roles are as men and women and young people in the church, how we should be conducting ourselves. So back to our text. This verse that we were just on, verse 14, applies to the young men as well. You are now out of the child phase. You are no longer children. You have gained some knowledge and much zeal. Beware, though, It is dangerous to have zeal without knowledge, and the one who acts hastily makes poor choices. You are growing, young men, and you are being equipped for spiritual battle. John says, You are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. This is an encouragement. John's being a great hype man right here. He's getting you all pumped up for spiritual battle for God. And that's great, but I want to reword this sentence as a conditional Young men, you are strong if the word of God abides in you. You are strong because the word of God abides in you. In order to maintain your battle readiness, you must continue to be fed by the meat of scripture. You must pray daily. You must not forsake the assembly of the saints. And you should be partaking in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. God has given us his means of grace, and it is his grace that we need. Think of it this way. A boxer doesn't just go into the ring cold for a fight. He needs to train for that fight. He would get destroyed if he went in cold. A soldier doesn't become a soldier without training. We are in a spiritual war daily. It isn't just a date set out in the future that we can procrastinate and then... Cram at the last minute to get ourselves battle ready. We need to be always ready. God gives us these means of grace to strengthen us and to point to His promises. He strengthens us, and in our weakness, He makes us strong. It is through Him that we overcome. Now, in the beginning of C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, uh, Jill Pole and Eustace Scrub uh, arrive in Aslan's country, and shortly after, uh, Jill's actions causes Eustace to fall off a cliff, and Aslan shows up to send Eustace safely to Narnia. Then he tells Jill she is to go to Narnia, meet up with Eustace, and find Prince Rilian. And in preparation, he gives her signs that she must remember. She is to memorize them and not forget them. He says, but first, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning, when you lay down at night, and when you wake in the middle of the night. Now, Doug Wilson wrote a book called What I Learned in Narnia. And he points out that this is an exhortation uh, to remember. It's, it's a biblical lesson, and it echoes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6-9, through 9, where it says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God commends us to spiritual discipline. If you remember back in the beginning of chapter 1 of John's epistle, um, I had mentioned there's the link of the use between John's uh, use of senses as the referent for his witness and how that applies to us. God gives us visible, sensible things that we can touch, taste, and see to point to spiritual realities that we cannot see. The visible bears witness to the invisible. and That's what the sacraments are. Our baptism is the sign and seal for our being birthed into this new household, the household of God. It's His mark for us that we are His and we are His church. The Eucharist that you partake in weekly is the the bread and the wine representing Christ's body and blood to be done in remembrance of His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection. Foreshadows our place at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. We get to partake of Christ's body and blood because we are Christ's body. When we sit under the word, the spirit moves us and convicts us and rejuvenates us in areas which we lack. It guides us and it equips us to go outside of these four walls and to be a witness in our everyday lives. When we pray, we're approaching a loving father who hears us and Christ intercedes for us to his father And even though our words are imperfect, God's spirit within us conveys what we really need to our Father. So when we're praying, we're entering into this Trinitarian communication. When we fellowship with one another in the body, it is the bonds of love being strengthened. We are not alone. We are reminded that we all belong because we are all a part of Christ's body. All of this... These things that we do as a church and in our families, they aren't empty things we just do. They're spiritual disciplines that strengthen us in our relationship with the Father through the Son and in the Spirit and with one another. And they are for our reminder that we are in Christ. Look to your baptism. Look at your position within the body of the church. Are you remembering the signs? Do you love God? Do you love your neighbor? When you sin, are you confessing it to your Father for forgiveness? When you get overwhelmed that you think that you don't measure up, that you keep failing, remember that it's not you who saves you. If it was up to us to be saved, no one would be saved. But that doesn't mean you could do whatever you want, it just means that we all fall short. We are all in need of God's mercy and His grace. God gave us His signs and seals as a means to point us to the fact that we are in Christ. And it is Him that works through these things. They don't do anything because we do them. God does the work through them. God does all the work. They all point to the fact that we are His workmanship created unto good works. This is to remind us that we belong to Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we belong to You. We thank You that You are merciful And that you sent your Son down to us, for us, on our behalf. That you have forgiven us of our sins. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you that you have given us your signs. That you have given us your word. That we have a means by which we can be reminded that we belong to you, Lord. And help us to grow and to bear much fruit. And to be a good witness to those around us, to draw more people to yourself.